You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Have you ever heard the personality theory that there are left-brained people and there are right-brained people? You heard of this before? Left-brain people, right-brain people. It goes something like this. The left-brain people are the more logical, linear, rational, numbers, analytical type people. So put that in your mind. And then there's the right-brain people. These are the creatives, our artists, the more uh, big concept uh, people who are in touch with their emotions. Now, by a show of hands... Where are my left brain, logical, analytical people? Where are you? I know who you are, so don't, you better raise your hand. And by a show of hands, who, where are my right brain, big concept, artist people? Okay? Some of you did not vote. Now this theory started to make headway in the 1960s, primarily under the research of psychobiologist Roger Sperry. And his research was uh, centered around hemispheric lateralization. I had to look that up. I was like, what does that mean? It's just a fancy way of saying that each side of the brain kind of specializes in different roles and responsibilities. So generally speaking, Sperry found that the left hemisphere controls speech and language. It's the side of your brain that's going to do all the heavy lifting with numbers and calculations and analysis. And that's why people who are more methodical, logical, are believed to be more left-brain dominant. And generally speaking, the, the, the right hemisphere controls creativity and perception, spatial uh, re, uh, understanding and emotion. And that's why people who are said to be more creative and in touch with their emotions are right-brained people. Now, despite the popularity of this uh, theory, current research has shown this to be more fiction than fact. So it's not really reliable. Neuroscientists have shown that the brain doesn't really favor one side or the other. It's not as if you're using half, like one side of your brain and the other half of your brain is just kind of like put in the closet somewhere. Now, it's true each side of the brain does have, you know, different areas of specialization. But the reality is we don't simply use one side of our brain at a time. We are whole-brained people using both sides of our brain. In fact, uh, part of the problem with this theory is that it's, it's, it's overly reductionistic. It's overly simplistic. It, 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 our, our brains are much more complex than that. And really, both sides are working together in concert. So let me give you an example. While our left hemisphere may do the heavy lifting with mathematical calculation... The right side also helps to uh, kind of understand those numbers and to offer big picture kind of conclusions and make um, comparisons. While math certainly requires logical analytical thought, it also involves creative thought as well. As you approach a mathematical problem, the, the creative side of you is kind of coming up with different ways to approach that problem. Even art, think about art. It's not simply unbound, illogical creativity with no logical order. In other words, while we may have certain personality preferences, we may be better at certain tasks, we are always using both sides of our brain. They, they inform and help each other. Now you may be asking, what in the world does this have to do with the Bible 
in Exodus chapter 2? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're in week three of a series in the book of Exodus called Deliverance and Devotion. It is the story of deliverance in the Old Testament. In other words, it would be hard to make sense of the history of redemption without a really good understanding of what God is doing in the book of Exodus. Almost every other Old Testament book will point back to it, borrow language from the book of Exodus to help understand their story. It becomes the prototype of deliverance and redemption throughout the rest of the Old Testament, all the way to the New Testament as we make our way to the ultimate redemption accomplished for us in the life and work of Jesus Christ. And as a story, the book of Exodus naturally illustrates. There's something beautiful about story that when you hear stories, there's a reason why we read stories to our children. There's, there's a reason why even as adults we are still captivated by story because when we hear story, it paints a picture in our mind. We, we start to form even uh, what the characters might have looked like, what the setting would have looked like, what it would have been like in all of those scenarios because it is illustrative. It paints a picture. It, there's this picture that's created in our mind. Did you know that 43% of the Bible is just straight narrative. In other words, most of the Bible is a story. And stories are helpful because they, they teach us about ourselves and they take these abstract principles and they make them come to life. They, 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 they make them meaningful because we are able to connect with them. So just like we need... Here's the connection. Both sides of our brain to function and thrive in the world. As the people of God, we need both stories and principles. In other words, the stories help inform and so we can understand the principles. And the principles work back as well to help us understand the stories. Both story and principle mutually informing one another. We need the imagination and the connection of stories and narrative in order to make sense of it all. So the more we understand the story of Exodus, the more we will understand our, uh, our story of redemption that God is telling. So this morning we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. And in this chapter we're going to see three principles of deliverance that are illustrated for us. So what I'm going to do as we walk through the narrative is try to draw out these principles and show you how the story is helping us make sense of them. So there'll be three principles this morning. If you're taking notes, here's our outline. First, we're going to see the providence of deliverance. The providence of deliverance. Second, we'll see the preparation for deliverance. There's going to be a preparation for deliverance. And finally, we'll see the promise of deliverance. Three principles of deliverance illustrated for us in Exodus 2, the providence, the preparation, and promise of deliverance. So let's start together in chapter 2, verse 1. Please hear again the word of the Lord. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer... She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So the first thing we learn about Moses' family is he is a descendant of Levi. Both his mom and his dad are from 
uh, the tribe of Levi. This is the tribe that will eventually become the priestly tribe who will serve the Lord in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. We did a series in Genesis. Uh, we, we talked about Levi. If you're interested, you can go back and read in Genesis to learn about this man Levi and his past. And it's, it's fascinating to learn about his life. If nothing else, it will show you that God uses broken people and broken families to bring about restoration and redemption. You see, Levi is not this um, moral exemplar. He's got, a, he's got a dark family past. And you'll see that that does not disqualify or discredit God using this family to bring about his story of redemption. I personally find that helpful and encouraging. In any case, this Levite couple has a child, but not just any child, a son. Now, if you remember from last week in chapter 1, at this time, to know that you're going to have a son, to have a son born, is both good news and bad news. It's mixed. Why? Well, there is a nationwide, government-sanctioned edict of death against all of the sons of Israel. You remember that? Pharaoh said all Hebrew sons must be killed. They are supposed to take these newborn sons. Imagine this mother who has just given birth. All of the the pain and all of the, the mixed joy of new life. And you are under order to take this child, your child, and throw them in the Nile River. This is Pharaoh's way of keeping the population under control. So they never grow too powerful and leave Egypt. Now later we're going to find out this Levite woman's name is Jochebed. One of the things I love about uh, the book of Exodus is how uh, Moses uses names and who he chooses to name and who he chooses not to name. So we know her name. Her name is Jochebed. And the Bible tells us that when she saw her baby, she did not think bad news. She thought good news. In fact, the Hebrew literally reads, the woman conceived and bore a son And she saw that he was good. Now, does that sound like language you're familiar with? To see an act of new creation, to behold it and say, this is good. Well, this is Genesis 1 language. And I think Moses is is connecting the dots for us to say in the same way that God stood back and looked at his creation and saw that it was good. Jochebed saw her baby boy and said, he is good. This is, this is a good thing the Lord has done. He's not a curse. This child is a blessing because children are a gift from the Lord. See, she's looking at the world the way that God looks at the world. She's allowing the way that God sees the world to inform how she will see the world. She will not let the culture of her day, this culture of death that says baby boys are to be thrown in the river, She will not let this culture define and tell her what is good and what is not. She is allowing God, who is the only one who can define what is good and what is not. So instead of complying this evil decree of Pharaoh and discarding her baby, she hides him for three months. And if you think through the story, this isn't the first time she's done this. Because Moses has an older brother named Aaron, who we'll later find out is three years older than him. So Jochebed is a courageous Hebrew woman. This isn't the first time she's done this. She's, she hid Aaron before, and now she hides Moses for three months. But if you know anything about babies, you know they're hard to hide. Are babies quiet? No. They're the opposite of quiet. Do you think they stop 
crying or making noise when someone is coming that you need to hide them from. Shh, be quiet. Danger is lurking. No, no. Babies are completely, uh, uh, they will cry when they want to. They do not take your words seriously. They will do whatever they want to do. They don't cry and stop because you tell them that danger is lurking by. So she had to come up with another plan. And I would suggest to you that Jochebed is acting by faith. Now, almost always, when we're in dangerous, hard, difficult situations like that, our faith is also mixed with fear. It's never just a pure faith. I hope that encourages you. My faith is never completely pure and untainted by the mix of anxiety and other emotions. But I would suggest to you that her faith is the dominant driving force in her actions. Well, how do I know that? Well, because the best commentary ever written on these verses tells me so. Here it is, Hebrews 11, verse 23. Best commentary ever on the Bible. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So the writer of Hebrews, this is the Bible. So when the Bible speaks about the Bible, that's like perfect commentary. It's not mixed with any error. And so this inspired writer of Hebrews sheds light on this situation. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Moses' parents were acting by faith. By faith, his parents hid him. Did they fear the king's edict? Yes. But did it have the dominant voice and drive in what they were doing? No. Their faith overcame their fear. They did not let it determine their actions. They defied the king's command. They hid their good baby boy. And when hiding no longer became an option, they entrusted their boy into the hands of the Lord. I don't know how, but somehow, someway, Jochebed knew her child was special. Somehow, someway, the Lord directed her steps down to the banks of the Nile, where by faith she built this little basket for Moses. The word for basket here is teva, and it's used only one other time in the, in the Old Testament. And it's used several times in Genesis 6 to describe a large basket that Moses makes to survive the flood. We usually call it the ark. It's the exact same word. And so in her mind, she's like, there was this, there was this big basket boat thing that saved Noah through the waters of judgment. So I'm going to build another one for this little baby so that maybe he'll survive these waters of judgment. Moses, who writes this, this is a little bit autobiographical, is intentionally linking his story with the story of Noah. By using these same words, he's saying there, there's a similarity going on here. This is brilliant storytelling. In the same way that Noah was saved from certain death in the flood waters, Moses too was saved from certain death in the waters of the Nile by being uh, placed in this teva. In both cases, salvation is provided to escape waters of judgment. Verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, Pharaoh's daughter happens to be at the right place at the right time to see this basket among the reeds. And here she finds a Hebrew baby boy. 
Now, what is she supposed to do when she sees him? She's supposed to just kerplunk him right down into the bottom of the Nile. But instead of drowning him in the river, she took pity on him. Now, this word pity can also be translated as compassion. And usually you let the context decide which, which is the better word. I, I do think compassion is more fitting in this case. Why? Well, pity means to feel for something, while compassion means to feel with something. Just even the word calm means with and passion, emotion. So she's feeling with him. Now, given the context of the situation, Pharaoh's daughter doesn't have a momentary feeling of sorrow for this child. She actually enters in personally to such a degree that she's willing to take the risk of saving his life. Not only would she be defying her father, but she is defying the sovereign ruler of the most powerful empire in the known world at the time. To keep this baby is to say no to the Pharaoh. The story reminds me of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember that parable? In that parable, the priest and the Levite, they see the wounded traveler and they have pity on him. They feel sorry for him. But their pity stops short of doing anything to help him. They feel sorrow. They're not excited he's in this situation, but they keep on moving. They feel sorry, but it never becomes personal. They don't feel with this traveler. But the Samaritan moves from this impersonal distance of pity to the personal nearness of compassion. You could subtitle this portion of the story the parable of the good Egyptian. Verse 7, then his uh, sister, this is Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Here we find out Moses has a big sister. Her name is Miriam. We'll find out later. And she just happens to be at the right place at the right time with just the right thing to say to the princess. And the princess just happens to listen to this little Hebrew slave girl. And in a matter of moments, Miriam comes back with Jochebed, her mother, her mother ready to receive back her son now under the protection of the royal court. And to top it all off, she gets paid to do what she would have done for free. And the princess names this child Moses, which sounds like the Hebrew word for drawing out, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now friends, if you've ever wondered, what is providence? I hear people talk about the providence of God. I would suggest to you that this is providence. You have the principle of providence illustrated for you. So let me give you the principle. We, we talk a lot about providence here because it's really hard to turn a page of the Bible and not go, well, that kind of teaches about providence too. It's in fact, it's all over cover to cover. We've used this definition over the years from John Piper. It's short, it's compact, it's worth repeating. The providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. So 
fullness of power and reign, his sovereignty, nothing outside of his control, and yet it's purposeful. He directs his sovereignty towards his intended ends. And because he's God, what he wants to happen always happens. Here we see the providence of God sovereignly watching over Moses to preserve his life despite all the odds that are stacked against him. See, this is not a story of luck. This is not one of those like one in a billion odd kind of stories. No, nothing is left to chance. This is the providence of God saying, I will raise up Moses for my purposes and nothing will get in the way of it. Nothing, not Pharaoh, not the Nile, nothing will get in the way. Here we see his sovereignty over both like macro, huge, cosmic um, empire type things and the micro all the way down into the bulrushes and, and how this little basket is put together. He is sovereign over the entire Egyptian empire and he is sovereign over this basket floating down the river. Not only does God have limitless control over situations and circumstances, his sovereignty is purposeful and directed. It's not merely just that he's powerful, but that, he, that he's purposeful. He takes his power and he turns it towards his good ends. His power is not whimsical. It's not broad. It is laser focused to accomplish his purposes in the world. Notice, this man, this Pharaoh, believes himself to be in complete control over his empire. And as the readers were reading this going, he is a fool. Right? His decree was, was said to go out against all Hebrew boys because of his fear that they would rise up to overpower him. And yet, who did he let live? He let the daughters live. He said the daughters can live, the sons were going to kill, because he believes these daughters pose no threat to him. And who is it in this story that keeps coming up over and over again, overturning and thwarting his purposes? It's the daughters. It's the women in the story. Remember Shipra and Pua from last week? These Hebrew daughters, the midwives who defiantly stand against the king, who inspire hundreds if not thousands of Hebrew women to keep their sons and hide them from Pharaoh? Jochebed, she hides her firstborn Aaron, who will become pivotal in the story later on. Three years later, she hides Moses. By faith, she entrusts Moses to the Lord that he would protect him even in the dangerous crocodile-infested waters of the Nile. Hebrews' own daughter, the princess, finds Moses, and instead of killing him by the word of her father, she makes him a prince of Egypt. Miriam Another daughter will come and speak up at the right time with the right word to orchestrate a turn of events that enables her mother to receive back her child and get paid for it. Friends, this is a picture of the providence of God working in all of the details to make sure that nothing is left to chance, that his purposes prevail and his will is done. That's the providence of of God, and it is on beautiful display for us here. One quick point of application. When you think about the providence of God, how do you picture it? How do you see it? Here's what I mean. A heart that is led by faith will always have in the background knowing that God is providential. He is at work. He is orchestrating the events, the situations, and circumstances in my life. On a heart of faith, 
will have this trust that says, Lord, I may not understand what you're doing. I may not always see the, the ins and outs, but I trust you. See, a heart of faith will see these situations and circumstances and find a, 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 a reason to praise the Lord. Like in this situation, a heart of faith will say, salvation belongs to the Lord. Look at how he makes the proud look foolish. Look how he works in the details to preserve and protect this future deliverer. Now there are some who will read this exact same story and instead of finding a, a reason to praise the Lord for his providence and his care, they will say, yeah, but what about the other children? What about the ones who didn't get saved? What about the fact that the Israelites are still enslaved? See, they won't look for any of the goodness. In fact, in other words, their heart will just grumble. Everything becomes an occasion for grumbling. And a grumbling heart is never content, never satisfied. A grumbling heart never worships. A cynical heart that is void of gratitude will always be discontent. A grumbling heart will always find the negative in the situation. See, I think this passage is here to teach us about the providence of God so that we will look for it in our lives. See, the, the people of Israel are under a heavy weight of suffering. And yet God is at work. So when you come to a time of suffering, do you ever get to a place? I'm not saying you have to perfectly get to this place or even that you have to first get to this place. I'm just saying when you're in a time of suffering, does your heart of faith ever get to the place where, you're, where you say, Lord, I trust you. What are you trying to do in me? What are you trying to do through me in this situation? Lord, I know that your providence is good and it's purposeful. So what are you trying to teach me? What, what part of my character are you trying to shape? What, in what ways are you building me up, shaping me so that I might one day be a comfort to someone else? Lord, I trust you. Your will be done. That is the heart of faith. Or does it stay in this grumbling discontentment where you say, Lord, how could you do this to me? Lord, why are you making my life so difficult? Again, don't mishear me. I'm not saying you can't experience and feel the negative. Lord knows I do as well. I'm not saying you can't feel the pain. You should feel the pain. Christianity is not about stoicism, never feeling pain. I'm not saying you can't even have breakdown moments. I've had my fair share. What I'm saying is that the heart of faith will see both. It'll, it'll, it'll see the negative. It'll have the fear. It'll have the anxiety. But the heart of faith will overcome it. The heart of faith will learn to see the good in the midst of the bad. The heart of faith will say, even though I can't put all the pieces together, I don't have the full picture, Lord, I trust that you are at work. The heart of faith will get to a place eventually where you say, Lord, you give and Lord, you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is the prov principle of providence on beautiful display in this narrative. But there's also a second this passage also illustrates for us the preparation for deliverance. Look with me at verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. 
When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. In five short verses, you have Moses going from a baby, growing up to a prince in the palace of Egypt, to being a grown man sitting by a well as a fugitive. So let's unpack the story. We know from Acts 7, verse 22, uh, Stephen tells us that Moses grew up in the palace of Egypt and received a world-class education. He would have had a life of immense privilege beyond anything you could probably imagine for yourself. And in fact, his name would have at least been on the list. It would have been on the table as a potential heir to the throne. That's what Moses has going for him at the time. So on one hand, For 40 years, Moses has just grown up as an Egyptian. He has an Egyptian identity. He talked like an Egyptian and, dare I say, even walked like an Egyptian. If you know, you know. But on the other hand, Moses is a Hebrew. He knows he was drawn up out of the water by his adopted mother. It's also very likely that he maintained a relationship with his family. And yet for 40 years, that Hebrew identity stayed dormant beneath the surface. But now in verse 11, we start to see that identity come to the surface. It says that he one day left the palace to go out. And the Bible says that he looked on their burdens. Now, that certainly means that he saw that they were oppressed. But he already knew that. He already knew that they were enslaved. So it it must mean more than that. In fact... In seeing their affliction, it began to change them. He, he looked on it in a way that it began to impact him. Stephen tells us something remarkable in Acts chapter 7. By the way, I hope you notice, I am using scripture to interpret scripture. This is like the best way to do Bible interpretation. If another passage speaks about another passage, you get to use that passage to understand the other passage. That makes sense? Acts 7, here we go. When he was 40 years old, that's Moses, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. This whole sermon that Stephen is preaching uh, is about how over the course of Israel's history, God has brought someone, raised up a deliverer, raised up a prophet to help them, but how they always reject them. That's like the whole point of his sermon. It's awesome. You should go and read it. But when Moses was 40, something changed in him. That's what Stephen is telling us, that it came into his heart. He had a heart level change. In other words, he started to identify with his Hebrew brothers. You notice he's calling them brothers. That is identification language. My brothers. You notice he calls the the Hebrew uh, people his brothers. He is making that connection with them. In other words, their affliction became his affliction. He identified with them. And if you go back to Hebrews, the writer says even more. Verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
Do you see what the writer of Hebrews is telling us? By faith, Moses chose to, his Jewish identity instead of his Hebrew identity. He's saying, I am no longer a son of Pharaoh. I am now a Hebrew. They are my brothers and my sisters. And what that meant was leaving behind the power, the pleasure, and the prosperity that his Egyptian identity would have guaranteed him. And what's more, somehow, some way that we just don't know, Moses had even started to see himself as a deliverer. You notice what Hebrews said that he was hoping, supposing that these Hebrew brothers would recognize that salvation, deliverance could come by his hand. He has had a heart level change that moves him to action. So he sees an Egyptian beating one of his people. And the text tells us that he looks this way and that. He sees no one else around to come to the defense of this Hebrew man. And so he takes action. And in the altercation, Moses ends up killing the Egyptian. I would uh, suggest to you this was not premeditated. He happens to come upon this situation. But it happened. There was no one else around. He goes and uh, Stephen tells us that he was going to the defense of the Hebrew man. And it happened and in a state of panic, the the Egyptian man dies and he buries him in the sand. Now the next day, Moses goes back out, which probably suggests that this had become a regular habit of going out among his people. And this time he sees two Hebrew men fighting. And he says, he tries to break up the fight. And remind them, guys, whatever disagreement you have, there is much more that binds you together than that should separate you. You are both Hebrew brothers. Don't fight. But instead they reject Moses' help. And it becomes clear that word is out about the blood on Moses' hands. And so this sets into motion a series of movements. Very quickly Moses tells us Pharaoh knew about it and now Pharaoh is coming after him. And so Moses flees to Midian, verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered the flock. And when they came home to their father, Ruel, that's the priest of Midian, later we'll find out he has another name, Jethro, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us, there's our deliverance language, delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah and she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, while Moses is at this well, remember he flees to this well, he finds seven shepherd women who are tending to their father's flock and they come to the well to water their flock, but these other bully shepherds come and they're trying to drive them away. So Moses does the right thing and protects them and saves them. He delivers them. He even helps to water their flock. And as a prince in Egypt, I can promise you he never watered a flock. He, he, uh, 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 the Egyptians considered the shepherd's life to be an abominable one. They did, they did not like shepherding. Moses would never have had interaction with livestock unless it was roasted on the table for his dining pleasure. 
But here is Moses delivering these daughters from danger and even doing the work that he was taught that would be beneath him. He's doing manual livestock shepherding labor. He's probably never gotten his hands dirty in his life. And here he is delivering these women from oppressors and watering their flocks. As the story unfolds, the daughters go home. They tell their father. And by the end of the passage, Moses is married. He starts a family. He has a son. And so what principle is this part of the story illustrating? I would suggest to you that this is the preparation for deliverance. That God is using this period of his life to prepare Moses for his later work of deliverance. In other words, God will prepare us for the work that he has for us. In God's providence, he knows what he's going to have Moses do from years 80 to 120 in his life. And he's using these years, 40 to 80, to prepare him for that life. You'll see this in the life of David. How he served as a shepherd for his father before stepping into the role as a king. You see this in the life of Christ. Most of his life, most of Jesus' life, we don't know anything about. As he lived in relative obscurity, serving with his father in the family business as a tradesman. God will build into us the character and endurance we need for what he has prepared for us. Moses will live to be 120. And you can kind of neatly break down his life into three 40-year periods. You have zero to 40, he is in the palace as a prince of Egypt. 40 to 80, he is living in relative obscurity in Midian, serving as a shepherd. And then in years 80 to 120, he is the deliverer who will deliver Israel out of Egypt and lead them into the wilderness and prepare them for entering into the promised land. Now, by conventional wisdom, we would look at those middle years from 40 to 80 ago kind of wasted. Like, what are you doing with your life? You're just out there with the sheep in Midian. Like, you're the deliverer. Go deliver. In fact, in reading some of the commentaries, people looked at this period of his life as a delay. Like, he he delayed doing what he was supposed to do. And I would say, no, 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 no. These years are preparatory. God is using these years to change and shape him. See, one day Moses is going to have to lead Israel like a shepherd leading sheep. So how does God prepare him to tend the flock of God? He literally makes him a shepherd to lead sheep. See, shepherds have to be both firm and tender. And Moses learned both of those as a shepherd so that he would one day be both firm and tender with the people of God. He is prepared for this great task that is ahead of him by being an actual shepherd with actual sheep. He is learning humility and faithfulness in the everyday stuff of life. We are often taught to look down on that period as kind of unimpressive. It's really unimportant. We would consider those 40 years as mundane, day in, day out, shepherd work. But it's often the very thing that God will use to shape us into the people that he will use for his purposes. Under the providence of God, I would suggest to you that there is nothing in your life that is mundane. There is nothing truly obscure. Friends, don't waste the years of 
preparation. These are good moments. There will be times when you have failure moments, tedious moments, good moments, but all of them in the hands of the Lord, nothing is ever wasted. They are all preparing us for future work. So now we've seen how God's providence and preparation and deliverance. Now let's see our final principle, this promise of deliverance. Verse 23. I love how this ends. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of the slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Here we get a summary. You can imagine if like this is a movie, the camera kind of pans back. Maybe it's like a drone shot. It's pulling back and we get this summary of what's going on. And first thing we learn, the king of Egypt dies. If you think about this, the last two chapters have been a recounting of Pharaoh's unwavering commitment to subjugate, oppress, and kill the Israelites. And the irony is that the plans of the most powerful man on earth are now flipped upside down. His very actions to try to suppress the people of God are the very things that come to his own unraveling as the day of deliverance approaches. And in the end, he dies. In fact, the rest of the, uh, of the story is a whole new Pharaoh. See, Pharaohs come and go. But the Lord endures forever. Second, we learn that the people's cry for rescue from slavery makes its way up to God. See, the people are groaning because of their slavery. That word groan is like, you know when you pick up something heavy and you kind of grunt? That's the word. And what he's saying is their lives, because of the slavery, have become so embittered, so difficult, that their very lives are groaning and grunting under the weight of slavery. It's a beautiful imagery. It's a beautiful way to describe how hard their lives have become. But now, this inarticulate groaning and grunting has become a prayer. And Moses tells us that this prayer has reached its way up to God. And then Moses says that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. God saw the people and God knew. What this is reminding us is that God is neither deaf nor indifferent. And if you're thinking thoughtfully, you're going to go, okay, what does it mean for a God to remember? Like, doesn't he know everything? Is it possible for God to forget something? Well, the answer is no. God neither forgets or uh, unknows anything that he already knows. It's not that he forgot the people, that this prayer came up and it was like, oh my goodness, I've been looking at, at this side of the world and totally forgot about the people over here. No, no, that's not what's going on. It is impossible for the God who knows everything to ever forget. It's not simply that the prayers jogged his memory. Like he was like, oh yeah, I did have a covenant with those people. I do owe them redemption. No. Their prayers from before the foundations of the world were part of God's redemptive plan. See, prayer is not simply just something for God. It's also something for us. That we are to have our hearts shaped in this kind of ongoing dependence on the Lord. At this proper time, their their cries for help came up to the Lord. See, God planned this period of suffering for purposes that are even beyond our comprehension. We don't even know the full scale of all that was in the mind of God. But we also know that this was also to shape his people. 
And when the Bible tells you, anytime, this comes up all the time, that God remembered his covenant, what you should think in your head is, oh, God is moving. He is moving into action. In the great work by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there is a curse upon the land of Narnia. And here's the curse. It's dreadful. It's always winter and never Christmas. Now, we are New Englanders. I think we can sympathize with this curse. The one bright spot of our long, cold winter is Christmas. It's the little beacon of hope that one day it will end, right? But that's the state of affairs in Narnia. It's always winter, never Christmas. And as the story unfolds, there's this scene where the children and the beavers are, 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 are trying to make their way uh, towards Aslan, and they hear a sled coming. Now, if you know anything about the, the, the witch, she drives a dreadful sled. And so they hear the sled coming, and they all take cover and hide. Now, the witch is looking for these four children, the sons of, daughter, or the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, because she knows there's a prophecy that they will rise up to defeat her. And so she knows, if I can kill them, then they cannot defeat me. So they all go into hiding. But as the sled comes near, they hear bells. And in their surprise and joy, they find that the one riding on the sled is none other than Father Christmas. And when they meet him, here's what Father Christmas says. He says, I've come at last, said Father Christmas. She, the witch, has kept me out for a long time, but I have got in at last. Here it is. Aslan is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. Do you see what's happening? Because Aslan is on the move, the witch's magic is weakening. Her, her grip over Narnia is weakening, allowing Father Christmas to come in. And it is the, the spark of hope that the dawn of deliverance is approaching. That's exactly what we have here in Exodus. We find that God has remembered his covenant. In other words, God is on the move. Pharaoh's hold over the people is weakening. Christmas is coming. Redemption is underway. The dawn of deliverance is on the horizon. And here's the principle being illustrated here. That God's promise of redemption is coming to fruition. God promised that Israel would go through this period of suffering. He promised that he would be with them. He promised that he would one day bring them out. And here we see God making good on those promises. We covered them in detail last week. Genesis 15, God promises Abraham, one day your many descendants will be in slavery. Genesis 46, to Jacob he said, go down to Egypt and I will be with you. And one day I will bring you out. And now here we are 400 years later and God is on the move. See, God is faithful to his word. He is a promise-keeping God who hears our prayers and our prayers, friends, you can trust, never fall on deaf ears. Even when you don't see him moving, he is acting. Even when you think he's deaf, he is not indifferent, nor is he deaf. He will answer his prayers for your good, for his glory, according to his perfect timing. Let your prayers then, friends, be filled with the promises of God and trust him to be good to fulfill every one of them in his time according to his will. Exodus 2, 
is a beautiful chapter where these principles are on beautiful display. We see the providence of God. We see the preparation of God. And we see that he is a promise-keeping God. Now, what do all of these things have in common, more than just the fact that they begin with a P? Well, they all require an expectant, patient faith. You notice that? Providence is usually only apparent in hindsight. It's only in looking back that we can see the providential hand of God. Preparation never feels purposeful in the moment. It's often hard and difficult. Unfulfilled promises require us, what? Patience, to wait. Waiting's the hardest thing for humans to do. And this points us all to Christ. Galatians 4 and verse 4, he, Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, just as Israel had to wait until the fullness of time for her Redeemer, so the church now waits until the fullness of time for our Lord to come back. Just as Moses was born of a woman, the seed of the woman at enmity with the son of the serpent, so too was Jesus born of the woman, the final seed who would come to crush the serpent once and for all. Just as Moses sought to redeem slaves and turn them into sons, so Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. So that we might go from being slaves to sons and daughters of God. May our faith rest in the perfect providence of God. May our faith trust in his purposeful preparation. And may our faith patiently wait until all of God's promises are fulfilled in Christ.